0: Welcome to the Reverberations podcast. This series is curated and hosted by me, Zara Ashad, and made possible with funding and support generously provided by the Design History Society UK. Reverberations as an initiative was originally proposed in late 2018 as an events program, a set of in-person conversations that would seek to address marginalization, underrepresentation and erasure in the UK's cultural and creative sectors. This group of talks was partly driven by my own harmful experiences of the fields in which I professionally practise, specifically museums, academia and design. While the podcast that you are currently listening to, a reincarnation of the aforementioned events programme, was developed throughout 2020, a year defined by COVID-19, the murder of George Floyd, And the subsequent heightened energy of the important Black Lives Matter campaign, in addition to new surges in anti-Asian hate. As these happenings and more have been taking place around me, I have doubted the value of public discussion, querying how can we move beyond lip service and help to enact meaningful change. The exchanges that I have had mostly during lockdown with the brilliant group of individuals who feature in this series offer glimpses into the possibilities and imaginings of how such change might be achieved, such as through collectively creating new systems, building networks of care and empathy, and thinking more carefully about whose voices we choose to amplify. The works, ideas and approaches briefly encapsulated here have greatly informed my own thinking, I hope these recordings will be similarly useful for you. Organised around three key themes, institutions, divergent models, and decolonising design and culture, season one of the podcast broadly focuses on history making, particularly in relation to design history and design studies. The conversations that feature implicitly reflect on how and where our histories have conventionally been told and who gets to tell them, through considering the work and experiences of BIPOC peers and colleagues who have navigated, continue to navigate, and frequently resist institutional structures and frameworks in varying ways. Season one of the Reverberations podcast was recorded remotely on Zoom as a result of the ongoing COVID-19 global pandemic. Please excuse any everyday life sounds that you might hear in the background. Our first speaker is Arika Oka, the Managing Director for Black Cultural Archives, or BCA, the home of Black British history. Arika has worked in heritage for over 15 years, including on the seminal Connecting Histories Project in Birmingham, building the Wellcome Collections archive, and co-convening Hull's first official Black History Month. So welcome, Arika. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me to speak. It's been a long time coming, this conversation. (laughs) We've been wanting to have the conversation for about a year. (laughs) I'm really excited that we're finally doing it.
0: Oh, me too. Yeah, it has been a long um, kind of prep time, but I'm really happy that we managed to kind of sit down this evening, this afternoon. Um, Yeah, so maybe to kind of start the conversation. I mean, you've been in the managing director role at BCA for a couple of years now. Um, And in conducting research for the podcast, I came across um, this statement that you had made very early on in your role. And that statement was that through BCA, we can correct the emissions and erasures in British history we can make sure that Black British people have a voice in the national agenda. We can support new and emerging talent, and of course, that I mean, that's such a you know a powerful and positive um, statement to make. Um, and at the risk of maybe asking a question that's much too broad, <laughs> can you perhaps summarise some of the ways in which you've started to? meet these aims, perhaps some of the key achievements that you've made in relation to that statement.
1: Yeah, of course. I'm really excited to see that statement because when you're doing the work, you're looking forward so much, which sounds odd coming from an archivist, because obviously archives are about like bridging the past and the present to the future. But when you're Mm -hmm. actually in it, you're just looking forward and it's really difficult to actually like take that moment to reflect and so I'm quite pleased actually (laughs) that I made that statement. (laughs) How interesting because that has been the frame and the framing of so much of the work that BCA has been doing since I joined in March 2019 and joining the organisation the organisation that it was when I joined feels light years away now from the organisation that it is now. You know, we've been through a lot together, including the pandemic. And despite all the challenges, we have absolutely been doing the work of correcting the emissions and erasures in British history. We've been doing that work. We've been running school sessions. We've been teaching on the undergraduate module, history module with King's College. We have a collaborative. PhD studentship from the University of Roehampton. We've been cataloguing collections, have been working with our residents, Poetic Unity and Decolonising the Archive. When the buildings open in the summer of the pandemic, we had a transatlantic season of conversations about the African-American experience and the Black British experience. So I'm really excited that we've been doing that work. And in terms of like making sure that Black British people have a voice on the national agenda, were part of the cross-government Windrush Working Group, which was convened Mm. by the Home Office in response to the Windrush scandal, which had come about because of Home Office hostile environment policies, which were essentially illegally deporting British citizens to places which they could barely remember having arrived here legally as children and citizens. Anyway, not to go into the Windrush scandal, but I think it's really interesting for BCA to be a heritage organisation that could get involved and have an active voice and use our active voice on a matter that affects our core identity communities that we were invented for and that we work for and are core to our mission and the way that we used our voice Ultimately, you know, at the point of this conversation has meant that we were invited by the government to help them fix <laughs> fix, a, fix a pickle that they'd got themselves into. Which is kind of crazy to me that it feels really unusual for a heritage organisation to have a voice that is like lowercase p political. And that when we started using our voice, we were so quickly able to start making a difference at a national level. And that's just one example. I mean, that's like we do a lot of work using our active voice. And in terms of supporting new and emerging talent, you know, one of the things that we were able to do during the pandemic was have our first digital artists in residence. And so they were using the collections to make new visual artwork and new multimedia artworks, which I am really, really proud of. I was really excited that we had that chance to do that it was arts council funded the arts council have very rarely funded bca in the past so Mm. it felt already like amazing that we were able to secure that funding but also amazing that this idea that we had can we have some artists in residence was something that we could achieve even in the pandemic and that the artists found it in in their words a process that in which they learned more about black history and that they were able to develop their practice in ways that, you know, in directions that maybe they didn't think that they could have before they started engaging with archives. So that's all really exciting. And there's, there's plenty more work on, on all of those things that BCA is doing. Yeah, it's really nice to be reminded that right from the start, that was the plan. So <laughs> It's <always laughs> good to know. <laughs> you have like gone off plan
0: yet. (laughs) Well I mean you know you've kind of mentioned this idea of looking forwards and I do kind of want to come to the BCA 2030 strategy at some point in the conversation but before we do that you mentioned that um, few if any of your previous projects and initiatives have received arts council funding and I was specifically interested in asking you about the funding uh, challenges, if you will, that you might have encountered. Because when I was first planning this initiative, it was supposed to start out as an event series. And this was back in late 2018. So this was when the um, hashtag back BCA campaign had just been launched to address a funding crisis that threatened the future of the institution of BCA at that time. And I know that is a little bit before your time. But I did find it particularly striking that the only national heritage center that was dedicated to collecting to preserving and celebrating the histories of African and Caribbean people in Britain to use BCA an official description, that this kind of heritage center was put in that position in the first instance. And more recently, of course, BCA has received, as far as I understood, from Instagram, <laughs> funding from the government's culture recovery fund, of course, in relation to COVID. So I wanted to ask you if you could perhaps share a bit more around how you've had to negotiate some of these funding challenges and how you've kind of meandered around that.
1: I mean, it's it, it could be a really, really long answer. Um, so I'm going to try and just do highlights for you. So the first part of the question is around how come 2018's financial pinch point for BCA happened and the hashtag back BCA campaign had to happen. So BCA is in its conceptual 40th year this year. So we date our conception as a, as a concept to um 1981 and the kind of flashpoint of the uprisings of that year mm-hmm. um, 1979 was the publication i think it was it nice no 1981 no was 1971 was the publication of bernard coward's book about the west indian child being made educationally subnormal in the bush education system I've, I've messed up the title but you can you can google it and that flashpoint in 1981 of the uprisings mixed with you know this group of parents who you know had read Bericode's book who understood that there was institutional or structural or systemic whatever racism in the educational system that was disadvantaging their children and looking around and seeing that there was nothing that really recognised the story and the heritage of black British people or black people in Britain. Um, and just understanding like, okay, well, we need something, we need something positive for the next generation to be able to build their identity and to not feel, you know, crushed by all of the obstacles that, they're, that, that, that are being placed in their way. And so that was the conception of BCA. Which means that the conception of BCA was a group of volunteers with no money, (laughs) doing voluntary work (laughs) with no resources, no building, nothing. And so, like, that's the conception of like quite a few charities. Some other charities, they start Mm -hmm. from the same philanthropic initiative or motivation, but they start with some savings, maybe an endowment. So, you know, in terms of BCA being put in that position you kind of have to understand like the narrative of BCA's journey is coming from grassroots activism, voluntary service. And so it's never, it's never had any money, basically, Mm. despite never having any money, that group of people have been able to grow and grow and grow this idea of BCA and the idea of our mission and be able to gather more and more people to the cause and It's definitely been more difficult than it needed to have been. It definitely shouldn't have taken over 30 years for BCA to finally get its building, which is One Windrush Square, which obviously we had to close in the pandemic. Um, It shouldn't have taken over 30 years for BCA to get that building. It did. Fundraising for BCA has been historically really, really slow, like pulling Mm. teeth. However, like it's also gradually built. So getting that building is kind of part of the story of 2018's financial pinch point because so much was kind of invested after like three decades of trying to get a building. So much is invested into getting the building that you almost start to, you know, BCA's mission began to be about the building and less about what we had talked about at the beginning, you know, correcting the emissions and erasures and stuff like that. And there was this kind of like, I guess, misunderstanding that having a building means that you can generate your own money easily. You can, you can generate income from a building. It's really difficult. And, you know, it tends to take about five years for that to kick in. And 2018 was like four years after we opened the building. So basically what happened in 2018 was things were more running BCA from One Windress Square was more expensive than the money that BCA was able to generate. so the costs were way higher than the income. super mm-hmm. boring, but that's kind of what happened. And by like the income being lower that there is a, definitely a story in there about how black led organizations are funded, how prior to the pandemic prior to um, like the 2020 Black Lives Matter movement, how it was very difficult to motivate, trusts and foundations individuals corporates public funders how difficult it was to motivate them to fund what this is like you know a direct quote from a funder that they don't fund black projects so no. it was definitely you know so that played that played into why things cost more than bca could generate um, So that's kind of like a really long answer. I meant to make it a shorter answer, but anyway, that's a long answer to 2018. But in terms of like where we are now, which is like vastly different, one of the things that we did was really reiterate and return to the core of our mission, that idea that really inspires and gathers people together. Um, and so, our twenty thirty strategy, with its like five aims, is really just a return to that nineteen eighty one spirit It's like make sure teaching and learning about black history is available to everyone, get the collections to be shared in person, touring online. I mean they wouldn't have said online in nineteen eighty one but like basically bringing black history to life to the people to the fore um, yeah to the for you know making jobs taking down the barriers to for, for people of colour to work in arts and heritage is one, one of the aims, being resilient and entrepreneurial is one of the aims and using our active voice is one of the aims and all of those are present at BCA's conception so coming back to that strategy, coming back to that vision and putting that in our strategy has meant that we've been able to gather more people, more supporters So even before the pandemic, people were starting to come back to us and being like really feeling that energy again and just being like, this is, yeah, this is brilliant. This is what BCA should be doing. We'll help you do it. The pandemic has shifted things for funders in that like they feel they they were suddenly able to kind of to, to sort of just generalize. I feel like in 2020, the funders began to realize that it's better, you can get the money out the door faster and easier if you don't give people lots of hoops to jump through. And so applying for funding suddenly became easier last year. And then the explosion in Black Lives Matter activism during the summer of 2020 meant that people were looking around for supporting organisations with anti-racism at the core. And so we've been able to, you know, work with people that previously like we couldn't get conversations with suddenly they're like more interested in us because they can see our anti-racist practice is you know part of the zeitgeist so we don't like for the future the only thing from all those things that is going to carry on into the future is our commitment to our mission Mm -hmm. because covid will go away eventually and the funders will not be like doing covid emergency grants anymore and Unfortunately, the enthusiasm around anti-racism will also go away at some point. So we were, like, really exhausted <laughs> across the board, but the Board of Trustees, the staff, etc. all of us, mm-hmm. like, there's yeah. a lot to cope with, pandemic as well. And then suddenly, you know, all eyes kind of turning to us to be like, right, we've made a Black Lives Matter statement. Uh, BCA, could you come and talk to us? And so... You know, Mm. one of our initial things was like, okay, sure, we can if it's an appropriate ask, but we did start charging (laughs) like quite a bit to to corporates, especially, who wanted us to talk to them. We were like, Do you know what we're like really tired? So you're gonna have to like pay us quite well to rightly (laughs) so, rightly so. And I think that was like one of the first lessons for us because we never really used to charge people very much like we would what what we I think we oh we had like a kind of more fixed rate range of fees which meant that we were a bit too expensive for grassroots groups and like incredibly crazy cheap for everyone else and so when we started charging corporates a normal amount which is probably still too cheap to be honest but to us it sounds like a lot um and then corporates were like oh okay (laughs) What an interesting lesson. We shall keep that lesson. <laughs> yeah. Learn from that. The power, the power of our cultural capital is something that we were aware of before, but had not understood how to leverage it. And I think we're understanding much better now how to leverage it. And the phase that we're in now of these new, new friends is trying to figure out how what, what, where can the relationship go? You know, my job as the managing director, like I have to think about money all the time. And I know it's probably like super boring for everybody, but it's quite interesting to me. But (laughs)
0: But, I mean, this is also, I, I feel like these are the conversations that don't get had because, you know, we can talk about the content and we can talk about pushing histories to the fore and making those more visible and all of these other efforts. But funding and the practicalities of keeping these organizations or these initiatives going are very real part of keeping everything else you know working and yeah I guess that was part of why I asked you the question because I am kind of interested in how these things come together yeah yeah
1: okay well um anyway I guess all I was saying is um we're trying to figure out like how we can build relationships so that when this isn't fashionable, we're still friends with with these people. But we're also, it kind of kickstarted for us thinking about like our ethics in terms of who we will take money from. Because no one was offering us any money before, so we didn't have to think about it. We had to think about it in the same way that like Tate thinks about peace, sponsorship or whatever. Like we were <laughs> never like going to be offered sponsorships we never had to think about it and now now we have a relationship manager who's funded by the national lottery heritage fund and she's been Mm. helping us understand like how to do due diligence on the donors which is actually like super super interesting and we've said we we've actually kind of had to to say no to at least one offer and a sort of partial no to another offer which is a long story
0: We already mentioned the BCA 2030 strategy, so maybe we can kind of come back to that. So, of course, this was launched last May, so May 2020. And one of the areas of focus that was outlined in the strategy was teaching and learning about Black history. And you've already kind of mentioned that you've done some work, you know, with King's College and the PhD programme. Could you speak more to and maybe give some specific examples around how you're looking to further teaching and learning in the next 10, well, no, maybe now
1: nine years um, (laughs) under the strategy. Nine years to go. So the strategy is a direction of travel. The reason that we phrased it teaching and learning about black history to be available to everyone is because we absolutely think that the piece of work, the piece of campaigning work around the curriculum is more than achievable in, within 10 years. And so we're like, we're not talking about the curriculum, we're talking about everybody. So one of the things, so, and we're interested in like different sorts of interventions into everyone's lives that help them be able to learn about black history or to share Mm -hmm. black history stories. And so one of the things that's happening this year is our first full colour children's book with Scholastic, published with Scholastic. It's super cool. It's about Windrush and it has brand new fiction stories for children about the Windrush period and the Windrush generation. And because it's with Scholastic, It's educational and entertaining at once. So brand new fiction stories interspersed with like fact files and pieces of archive. It's like incredibly gorgeous. So that that kind of thing. So alongside, you know, our normal schools programme, which we're mapping at the moment. We had some support from Historic England to help us map what we have and what we Mm -hmm. do to the curriculum so we can go beyond like history to you know mapping it to the English curriculum for example Mm -hmm. Uh, we're making new resources that for um, informal education as well as formal education Uh, there's all sorts there's all sorts (laughs) (laughs) and it's just going to grow and develop because as I say the 10-year strategy is a direction of travel but like how it's how we get there is going to be each year will be building and growing on it
0: yeah I mean that's hugely exciting um so before we hit record for this podcast you and I were talking about some of the teaching that I've been doing so I was formally trained in the field of design and I am now teaching in that field in craft and design and much of my teaching practice has thus far not just in terms of the teaching that I'm doing uh, more recently I have tried to push my students to look outside of the Euro-American canon. Um, My own research sits within East and Southeast Asian contexts, so I use those contexts usually as my departure point. But I suppose in my more recent teaching experiences, it really has been spotlighted how much the canon is still taught within our universities here in the UK. Um, And of course, that canon, at least in design, sits within this Euro-American centre, if you will. So having these extra resources, in the case of BCA, providing more visibility to Black histories, I think, is hugely encouraging. And also in terms of, as you say, meeting different audiences target audiences whether we're speaking about younger people or within formal education i'm definitely looking forward to seeing where you kind of go with that and hope that yeah can kind of hit the schooling systems in a very kind of more direct way very soon as you say you know it it is something that we can achieve very very quickly
1: yeah Yeah. yeah i feel like you know it's past time like schooling system is ready for it like is really ready for it you know the teaching unions are ready for it everyone's ready for it apart from possibly the government <laughs> for reasons best known to, to themselves hopefully they keep their reasons to themselves I don't want to hear about it but everyone else else is open to, <laughs> to, to, to doing this curriculum work um I'm super interested in your teaching practice actually and I'm one of the reasons I'm kind of interested in it is because of some of my past experience so for I used to be the archivist at a dance company called Rombert and we would work with with the archive in ways to kind of activate it in in like kind of unexpected ways so for example with art students it'd be like what if you're a visual artist how can you learn choreographic techniques from the archive mm-hmm. even though you're not you don't have a choreographic practice so I'm kind of interested in those sort of creative intersections that can be possible from taking new viewpoints and then the other reason is because I was reading an interview with David Ajaya the architect and he was explaining about how so much architectural education is based on like the like western western European western American practice Mm -hmm. Um, but he has access from his education his upbringing to a much wider architectural language you know he has access to like African practices as well which are absolutely ignored in like the Western ed- architectural education system
0: yeah.
1: um, and that means that his architecture he just has access to a different language basically which architectural language and I just think that's super interesting and that's definitely a way that I think BCA's practices can contribute to like it's it's really it's really not just about history like, that's a way in to opening all these other doors for, Mm. like, whatever you bring to the archive. You just use it as a way to, to kind of flex and develop your own practice, right?
0: There were two things, you know, that you kind of mentioned prior that I wanted to pick up on and maybe just push you a little bit on. I mean, you've mentioned Black Lives Matter and how that has changed how you've been able to acquire funding but another key initiative of BCA has been the documentation of the Black Lives Matter campaigns that took place um, following George Floyd's murder and I know that this has entailed kind of you know archiving the energy the efforts that took place last year can you kind of tell us more about that how far have you gone with this initiative and what's what what do you kind of envision its future to be as an archiving project or a documenting project
1: um so document black lives matter was i guess i was gonna say was is but i think it i think by its nature it's a was a rapid response collecting project so black lives matter as a movement obviously started way before last Mm. year Black Lives Matter as the motivation for the movement, it's super old. And so collecting around Black Lives Matter is a bigger project that we would like to do. However, document, exclamation mark, Black Lives Matter was absolutely about capturing that summer, last summer, when we knew that some people were experiencing activism for the very first time and embracing and being enthusiastic and being inspired by activism probably for the first time and that we knew that this level of engagement with this cause probably wasn't going to like be sustainable, right? It was brilliant people going out and making spreadsheets of Black Lives Matter statements so they could track whether companies were sticking to them. And it was just so great to see that we were just like, wait, even though we have like, even though we can't, because it's a pandemic on, we have to try and collect this. And we wanted to collect it really ethically as well. And so we did it as a as a kind of open call, but an open call by which, you know, we would say expressions of interest. Um, and then we would get back mm. to the people to actually collect it. And in the initial collecting, we asked questions about, you know, how they felt about copyright, whether they could use technology to obscure the faces of protesters that they'd captured so we could protect the protesters and anonymity as well and I, I think that you know we were talking to the Museum of London and the BFI about their separate rapid response collecting that they were doing in the summer and I think Museum of London were like oh we didn't I can't remember which one. One of them said that they hadn't asked that copyright question up front. And so it had made their rapid response collecting like a bit more difficult. And I think another one was sort of saying that like, because they weren't naturally like mission aligned to Black Lives Matter, um, they felt a bit awkward about putting that call out. And so what they were doing was actually like doing their own research and seeing what was out there and then approaching people to say, would you like to donate this to this Archive, so it's kind of interesting, like how, because it actually hadn't occurred to me, like it's such a natural thing for BCA to collect. It just felt like very natural for us to be like, we're doing this, mm. <laughs> and um, I hadn't kind of appreciated, I suppose, that other organisations that wanted to also do it would feel so nervous about doing about doing it, and I guess like rightly so, like if you've never if you've never expressed you know, an allegiance to like that particular type of activism in your collecting before, then obviously like you might not, you you might feel nervous about doing it. And from BCA's perspective, I think that we have like a similar piece of work to do ourselves because we've, for example, we want to, one of the things that we want to address is how BCA collects around disabled black history and queer black history which are topics that we've never deliberately collected about before or never mm. openly collected about right so but we want to <laughs> so we're like okay well i mean that just makes us sound super privileged um so what work do we need to do on ourselves to be able to collect these things
0: the other question that I wanted to ask you in relation to points that you raised earlier was the work that you, being the general BCAU, <laughs> um, <laughs> that you've done, uh, the work that you've done in relation to changing policy. So of course you mentioned your work you know around Windrush wind for example specifically around Windrush but can you speak more about how you might be influencing policy at the national level or like where you would want to kind of yeah. affect change in that way?
1: I think it's more about where our desire is because I don't know whether we could honestly say point to our impact yet but it's like a yet because we're definitely more and more in the room, and we have worked last year with the main heritage bodies, museums association, etc., on their mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter statements. And I think for BCA, it's about being in the room when Oliver Dowden, the current culture secretary, minister of state for culture, convened a meeting of the organisations which are nationally funded, plus a few others to tell them off about working on what he thinks is called contested histories. We would have loved to have been in that room. We don't wanna be nationally funded, actually. We wanna be nationally recognized, but we would have loved to have been in that room. You know, We would have loved to have been able to make sure that the histories of people of color, especially the ones that we, that we represent, but others as well, we, we think like, it's just weird that there wasn't anyone in that room and so you know our ambitions very much lie not around you know an egotistical wanting to to have influence but a mission led wanting to have influence and it all just comes back to our mission it all just comes back to wanting to address those omissions and erasures wanting to provide opportunities wanting to celebrate and preserve and promote black history but not as a silo, as part of like the national conversation and international conversations. And so that's the direction we want to go in influencing policy. I don't think we're there yet, but we're definitely taken much more seriously than we were in 1981.
0: So, you know. I mean, I'm curious to know what you also think about this um, farcical report, if it was a report, but Mm. the um, so-called conclusion that there is no racism in the UK um this actually came out when I was recording with another speaker with Dana Abdullah (laughs) it had just you know kind of freshly emerged and it was just like what what (laughs) like how do we react
1: to this yeah so I mean yeah um I feel like we're not, like BCA, we, we're not surprised at all about yeah. the conclusions that the commission seem to have come to. And I feel like a lot of people aren't surprised. But I guess what is surprising? <laughs> I just, anyway, I, I I really don't know how to phrase, like, my res- my personal response to it because, yeah, I'm not surprised by it, but I'm just like also surprised by like the bare cheek of it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I'm not surprised that that set of people, Yeah. when given what is essentially a PR exercise to do, as a result of the Black Lives Matter protest, the government mm-hmm. are like, oh, we need to do some PR around Black Lives Matter. I mean, literally everyone was doing, do you know what I mean? Like um, Sainsbury's was doing PR about Black Lives Matter, fine, like government want to do that. So I'm not surprised that the set of people that the government put together to do that exercise had those kind of conclusions, but it's still. Like... I know it's like this I thing. Mean, it's I like, would, like honestly, honestly, and I like, I probably shouldn't be so candid, but I mean, whatever. I would be embarrassed. <laughs> I would be like mortified if I was one of the commissioners, and that report came out with my name attached.
0: I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, it's
1: we, like, we, I'm totally right. with you. Sorry, you go. <laughs> no, me. no I, I mean, I probably should, should stop talking about it because like BCA will <laughs> do a formal response and we haven't, um, we haven't done that yet, but we're, we've got one in draft. That, so I should probably not talk about it too much, but I'm just like, you know, even um, it doesn't even feel like a first draft, like we've read it and it doesn't even, do what I mean? It's like, even mm. on that level of quality, Quality of thought, quality of intellectual rigor, quality of like analysis of data and presentation of data, quality of proofreading, quality of citations. Like it doesn't, it's, it doesn't even feel like a first draft. So I just, I just don't know what they were thinking, honestly.
0: If at all. I mean, I'm completely with you. It's just on the one hand, it's not shocking at all. And we all kind of expected something like this. But then on the other hand, how could something like this be released and I mean I haven't read the report in as much detail as it seems that you have but yeah just to kind of release something
1: in that state it's just just, wow I just find it a bit weird I find it a bit like well I guess more than a bit weird ultimately I don't think it's going to change the quality of the conversations that are already taking place because actually BLM of the BLM of 2020 was really, really deeply, like it reached places that those conversations have never happened before. And I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to change that. So I think it was a failure on that note as well. If the intention was to dampen those conversations, I, I really don't think it's achieved that.
0: But yeah, speaking of challenges that we're facing in our contemporary everyday life, I mean, like many organisations, you've also had to you know, shift priorities because of COVID, because of the pandemic, and you've um, alluded to it earlier on in the conversation. We're now emerging from, is it the third lockdown here in the UK? Throughout the past year or so, I would say, you know, we've seen many institutions, organisations kind of making use of digital platforms, digital means of delivering programming, and this, of course, also relates to some of the work that you've been doing at BCA. As far as I've understood it, there has been a prioritisation around the digitization of the collection. I think this is something that we had spoken about in one of our conversations in prepping for the podcast. And so I know that you've publicly released your online collection um, comprising over 4,000 items, is it, with the Google Arts and Culture? (laughs) (laughs) Organisation. But then, of course, you know, bcaexhibits.org has also just recently um, been released, which is amazing. Um, But can you speak more about, you know, these efforts around digitising BCA content and increasing kind of access accessibility to that content in the process as well. Yeah,
1: so the priority is digital access or remote access. I should probably phrase it that way, although remote access really means digital. I guess the priority is that it's not the priority isn't digitization of the collections because are quite different things. Okay. Um, but for people to be able to use the collections is a priority. And internally, that also means a priority in being able to look after digital collections. So BCA, you know, I've spoken a lot about BCA's kind of resources and the resource that we like is really expensive. is digital preservation. But this year we've been able to find support some of it from google to like financial support and we have other non-financial voluntary support as well but financial support from google primarily to help us fix our digital preservation systems which is something that archivists get really excited about and the rest of the world is (laughs) like oh that's super boring about digitization but um we kind of like the reason why digitization itself is not a priority is because we have to get those other two bits it's like you know, three parts to, to to digital collections and digitization is kind of like the one that you do when you've sorted out the other two. Right. So we need to be make it easier and better for people to be able to access the collections remotely. And we also need to make it robust for the collections to be preserved when they're digital. Digital material decays, if you like, faster than paper or photographs. It's actually mm-hmm. much more difficult to keep it. So, yeah, so we have to fix that. Not that there's, like, a massive problem with it, but if we're moving in that direction, we don't currently have the right setup to to move, like, digitally. So that's what we're working on first. Part of that, because it's BCA, part of that, we always have to be, like, a little bit messy in what we do. Messy meaning, like, we have to try and shake things up a bit. Um, So part of, like, including digital access and doing digital preservation will be, like, questioning, like, the western archival education norms educational norms and in, in, in how things are catalogued and you know how things are searched for, and things like that so we're definitely going to still approach it in a bca way which will be pretty cool but yeah i guess i'm going to change topic ever
0: so slightly i thought we could end the conversation by talking a little bit about of course the role of BCA is so incredibly important and also of similar initiatives so one of our peers Sandra Shakespeare she's been putting together material for the Black British Museum project and so you know these initiatives are no doubt critical in terms of correcting these omissions and erasures in British history to you know use um, your the words that um, I quoted earlier but I also feel like these marginalized histories also need to be taught and shared outside of these spaces. And we have talked about educating audiences at different levels. And I think one of the taglines around BCA, I can't remember if it was on your website or if it was physically on one of your buildings as part of an exhibition, but it was Black history every day.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, I was just wondering in your view what ways can we continue to kind of push to achieve this outside of um what we've already kind of talked about are there other ways that you feel that we can continue to push to get to that point
1: sure so the black history every day of the year can't remember how it's phrased, but anyway, it's kind of a, a sort of response to Black History Month being one month of the year, which is fantastic that Black History Month exists. One of the side effects of Black History Month existing is obviously that it that it's like one month of a year and suddenly everyone is kind of interested in, in hearing black stories. So yeah. how can we get it out of that month is, is one of the things that BCA is really interested in, because obviously for us, it's all year round, like just regardless and ways that we can get it out of that month it's like embracing black stories in everything that we that we do so there'll be a feature film about mary Seacole out hopefully this year they had to pause production because of the pandemic so i'm hoping it comes out this year because i'm obsessed with mary Seacole and i love her Um, (laughs) So it's, it's, you know, like having those kind of black stories, but also kind of having, you know, for example, the BBC put black cartoon characters, I think it was the BBC, in a a cartoon series about Roman Britain and people were, there was that that Twitter storm where Mary Beard was saying, that's fine because... there were black people in Roman Britain, like, it's fine. And she got really kind of a lot of online abuse and troll abuse. And it's just kind of like normalising the fact that this is not a siloed history, actually. Mm. It's, It's not. It's part of the British story. It's part of the story of these islands. It predates the idea of Britain, in fact. It's part of the story of the land that we share and the land that we live on. So, you know, it's it's kind of, it's about normalising that and just making sure that that, that is woven into, into all of these kind of representations. So Bridgerton probably is a bit of an exaggeration. However, there were like plenty of <laughs> black Georgians. <laughs> Maybe not, you know, René Jean Page, kind of Duke of Hastings, black Georgian, but there were plenty of black georgians so you know i think it's really cool to start normalizing that across like popular culture as well as in the formal structures that we've talked about like in school
0: yeah and on that note i guess (laughs) (laughs) i just want to say thank you again um you know for sitting with me here today and exploring in brief um the work that you've been doing, future directions and strategies and all of the other things that we've been talking about. I've really appreciated your the time and your energy and your contribution I know you're so so busy so I really do appreciate it Eric thank you so much
1: <laughs> well I love the conversation thank you so much Sarah and um, I'm sorry for being busy I'm gonna try and be less busy <laughs> no 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 don't apologize <laughs> because this has so been much. such a long time coming this conversation <laughs> but I've loved it and it's always really nice and I hope I didn't say anything so controversial that <laughs> <laughs> we'll see we'll see
0: Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform it is that you use to access your podcasts. This will help other listeners to find us. With special thanks to Davinia Gregory, Ellie Michaela Young, and Megha Rajguru for their continued support and guidance, Jenna Alsop for editing season one of the Reverberations podcast, and Claire O'Mahony, Chair of the UK Design History Society, for championing this work.